Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, January 26th. Championship weekend is approaching at the year's first Grand Slam action, continuing to deliver the goods at the 2022 Australian Open. But with that championship weekend approaching, the question we want to ask on today's podcast Where do things stand as we approach the semifinal round of the men's and women's singles action and joining us on today's podcast to help sift through what we learned from day 10 and talk about what we can expect to unfold moving forward is a returning champion to our Crack Racket shows. Now, you've probably known him best and his most featured role of his career as the guest fill-in host of this mini-break podcast feed. Of course, you also know him as the host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3333, a tennis show lover of Butterfingers. Ugh, my friend, (laughs) Gil Gross. Gil, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Yeah, you got to change the intro and not just returning champion. Co-host? Former, former, well, I, I mean... You don't need to go that far, but but emergency host. I like that. You're that. My, you know what? You're the Aaron Rodgers to my Alex Trebek. Um, you know, we tried it once, never again. Um, no, um, <laughs> no, it's um, yeah. I mean, first of all, you were delightful. I've never felt more threatened in my role at Crack Rackets than listening to that podcast. I was so <laughs> angry, and like right away, you bring up the Sabalenka anecdote of how she lifts her hands in the air, and there's this, you know, sarcastic relief as if she had won her first Grand Slam title. And I was like, do I use that sort of imagery when painting a scene? I know I talk fast. I may, I mean, I was like, that was beautiful poetry, and so I do appreciate emergency host Gil Gross you filled in big day for the Gil Gross media company it was fantastic and and it was a lot of fun and I I appreciate the opportunity and uh, I apologize to the listeners on the sound quality as on zoom I uh I didn't check to make sure that it was my microphone (laughs) audio so it was my laptop audio so my voice uh should sound a little bit sexier this time than it did there well, it sounded good, but you're right. It, it, the smooth, dulcet tones of Gil Gross very much being emphasized in today's <laughs> podcast. I, in speaking of Zoom malfunctions, we had a call today with a group of coaches that can remain nameless, and I was supposed to record it. And I was so overwhelmed letting all these coaches into the chat that I, and I was supposed to lead the chat that I did not hit record whatsoever. And like the moment it ended, I was like, why isn't, oh, you forgot to hit record. I was so furious with myself. Thankfully, that never happens on the podcast because, you know, there's always a little back and forth before you begin. But like the audio issue, 
a staple. And I sometimes have my computer audio set for the Zoom. You guys, we're, we're behind the glass door now. This is, we're into it. G&G, welcome to hour one. Um, <laughs> but sometimes I'll put the computer audio on the Zoom just in case the mic audio malfunctions. And that way I have something no matter what. I feel like that's the pro move. Yeah. Well, this is definitely the podcasting equivalent of Amina <laughs> Bechtis discussion. <laughs> Oh, I mean, in fact, it's coming on the Cracked Interviews podcast later this week for all of you. Let's listeners. go. So, you know, How yeah. about that? So it, in honor, it was Will a Gil get, Gross, special request. Credit for that? You're going to be in the intro, my friend. Special request. <laughs> truly requested by one of our emergency hosts to come on the show, a crime we haven't had her before. I very much look forward to exploring on that show whether she remembers do I share this here? Yeah, I think we should have. Before coming to my apartment senior year, we hosted a pregame. She and some other members of the team had come over, and I want to see if she sees the face and is like, why do I know you? And I could be like, I can tell you why you know me. There's a cliff bar on our floor forever that is indicative of a great story of why you know me. Um, but yeah, anyways, all that said, Amina Bechtis coming on the Cracked Interviews podcast later this week. But of course, again, thank you for filling in. And on that show, like we do on this show, we want to recap the latest action, set the scene for all of you listeners. Truly, you know, I think Ben tweeted out the stat. It's the first time no new uh, Grand Slam semifinalists on the men's or women's side since I believe the 2013 French Open. And it speaks to a greater theme we talked about all off season long at the start of this year is the generational shift over. Has it happened? And we are now on to the next generation. Maybe that's that indicative of that fact. Maybe not. We can explore that throughout today's show. But, you know, again, as we, you know, as we look at today's matches, I want to keep that theme of what we may expect to happen on move forward, uh, moving forward, of course, before we get to any of that shout out to our friends at Tennis Point. And listening to you, Gil, read the Tennis Point ad, I wanted to hear if you were going to get into your racket selections, be like, you know, for a long time, I got my rackets at Walmart. And then, you know, I started playing for a second year and I was like, maybe you should get a real stick. And so it was fun to hear where you went with it. Uh, obviously, tennis-point.com, latest and greatest equipment, all at the best prices. You use our promo code CR15, you get 15% all off all sale items free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. I got to send you a Tennis Point shirt that we have here at CRHQ, my friend Gil, since you're repping the squad now. But... I feel like this is, again, random topic here. We're really off the rails. Does most tennis shopping now happen online? Because I was right at the edge of the era where you still went to the tennis shop and you got to demo the racket on site and you put on the shoe before you bought it. Does that not happen anymore? It certainly happens less. And <laughs> I, I think this is a this is a societal trend, not, sure. not just a tennis trend. But I, I do hope that these tennis shops survive. I mean, no, no offense to any of the online retailers out there, but I think that there's enough room for both. And uh, I think people should, I think that's awesome. Now, I will say a lot of these online websites have really awesome demo programs that you can take advantage of. Yeah, that's the crazy part too. You can be like, can you ship me a racket and I'm going to use it for a month and then I'll ship it back. And they're like, sure, why not? It'll lead to maybe you buying it. It's it's something it's else. Awesome, right? Yeah, no. I mean, for me though, I always loved it because- it's, I mean, this is the ultimate machismo moment. I apologize. Let's be clear. I was, you know, 13 through 16 when you're at your most machismoist. And like, yeah, some of those thoughts still resonate to this day. When you go to the tennis shop and if you played tennis growing up and you can tell the person who's been doing the demos has seen 44 
fathers in a row trying to impress their kids who were just unimpressive on their forehand or backhand swing. And then you're like, well, can I take a few swings with him? And they're like, yeah, sure. Let me turn on the machine. And then you pop a backhand and you can tell right away the judgment process begins and they're scouting you and you're showing off and like you're judging the people in line who are going before you as well. I miss having the need to do that. Now I don't have an excuse to be like, yeah, I'm just going to hang out here and, you know, see what rackets are the best. And there was a time when you had that excuse. One of the best parts about tennis is it takes like three seconds to figure out how good someone is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the eye I think, right. I, I think there are a lot of like basketball players who like look good and shoot around and they can't play, but you can't really tell unless you play. But in tennis, it's hard. It's hard for someone to fool you. Like yeah. it's pretty clear how good someone is right away. So this will be our final tangent. If we could convince Jeff Sackman, who has now gone on both of our shows, shout out to us. I think we're the only two still in the Sackman group. Um, and we convince him at the end of the stats leaderboard. Let us put like an EY test where it's just the eye test metric. And it's just a stat you and I come up with. And it's behooping <laughs> of us to update it every week and be like, your eye test score improved. Your eye test. You know, Sabaleka, some weeks she's 106. Other weeks she's like a 12. Like, do you think we could convince him to let us do it? Yeah, we should try. Okay, so here's all I ask to any listener, and we're eight minutes in, so I think some of you will still be listening. At Tennis Abstract on Twitter, you tweet at him. You say, Jeff, Gil and Alex came up with an eye test rating they'd like you to incorporate (laughs) into the stats leaderboard. Are you interested? I'm not bringing it up. Gil, you don't bring it up. If one of you listeners bring it up, it would mean a lot to me, and I just want to see Jeff's response. So that's our question, our ask of all you, the listeners, but we've asked you to be patient enough. So with that in mind, let's talk about day 10 at the 2022 Australian Open. And the place we have to start is the match we all woke up to this morning, including you, including, you know, all of us. Daniil Medvedev comes from behind, two sets to love deficit, knocks off young Canadian Felix Ogier Aliasim Medvedev in the end, a 6-7-3-6-7-6-7-5-6-4 victory. Daniil Medvedev, lost his first 12 Grand Slam matches of his career when he was two sets to love down. He's now won his last two. He did the same against Chilich last year at Wimbledon. He does it here against Felix. And it was fascinating, Gil. Those of our crossover listeners who listen to our Great Shot podcast, Ace of the Day segment, know when I looked at that match, I saw Daniil Medvedev minus 750. I said right away, that's too high. You look at the tennis abstract number, I think Medvedev was like an 81% favorite. That was too high as well for over three and a half set matches. And at this stage of a Grand Slam, the margins being as thin as they are, just to steal a set, normally those are minus 200 odds. They were minus 120. I said, that's value. I said, anyone who's, and we just talked about the eye test, so this is a good segue, who's watched Felix play this year, whether it was the win over Zverev, whether it was the win over Nori, the win over RBA in particular at the ATP Cup, or anything he's done throughout the course of his run at this Australian Open, I thought this was the best version of Felix. Your tweets seem to indicate that you feel similarly. Before we get to the Medvedev side, because that's when we're going to start looking forward, I want to talk about Felix here. I had him for quite a bit of time, and we've had this argument before, on my list of locks to win a Grand Slam in this decade. I say, you know, Medvedev, who's already done it, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Sinner, Alcaraz, and I have Felix on that list. And I had Felix on the list before I had Sinner or Alcaraz, you know, a few years ago as well. The reason being, 
you look at all the accomplishments, you know, this is his third quarterfinal. He's the youngest player to reach three quarterfinals at the Slams since Juan Martin Del Potro. Yes, he doesn't have an ATP title to his name, but he was the youngest player to win an ATP Challenger title and the youngest to win two and the youngest to win three. And he's on that list of names always. Nadal, Djokovic, Del Potro, Gasquet, you know, Alcaraz is now on that list a lot as well. But FAA, Tomic, Gasquet, shout out to them as well. But when we look at Felix here, is this a reference point? Is this a frame of reference? That's what I'm looking for. A frame of reference changing now for Felix. This run he's had in January. It's one month, but for this to be the opening month coming off of what was last season's round of 16 in Australia, quarters at Wimbledon, semifinals in the U.S., is it time to change our frame of reference for Felix and, you know, talk about him? It should I mean, I think we've been doing it on this show, but I'm asking you, did you change your frame of reference? Yeah, I did. I I mean, I did it, you know, to a certain extent, I expected him to make a jump based on what we saw last year in improving his nerve management. And that was the one area where I'm like, okay, he's, he's starting to get it. And that's going to make all the difference. I didn't foresee so many technical aspects of his game getting so much better this off season so quickly from shot tolerance to defense. Um, and I know I have a third one here. Well, can I can I hit you on the first two? Because sure. I want to be clear here. Let, let's get even more specific, and that's why I always enjoy having you. Backhand shot tolerance and backhand, you know, def- uh, fluidity, excuse me, when he's got yeah. to play defensively on that backhand wing. And I think it started in the Rusevori match, which sneakily one of my favorite matches of this tournament because, yes, Rusevori, soft spot for him here on this show, but... Rusevori played lights out. Like he matched Felix in the serve plus one category. And you look at the zero to four shot rallies, he matched him through the first three, three and a half sets of that match. But not only did Felix end up winning out in the strength versus strength battle of plus one, but he was willing to extend rallies. And he Mm -hmm. won the five plus shot rally count and he extended that match physically and just wore Rusevori down. And there has not been a shred of fatigue. And, I, you know, I would actually loop Shapovalov into this as well because I think this was impressive from him also. I think from a fitness standpoint, these young Canadians have taken it to another level. And I, I think that might be, from a tennis standpoint, the biggest factor in all of this success. Yeah, I, I agree with the fitness thing. I do think that Felix, understandably, lost a little bit of his explosiveness in sets four and five against Medvedev. Again, I think what else could you expect? I mean, it would have been normal if Medvedev from an energy standpoint, just went down a little bit with him. Yeah. It was Daniil who just lost absolutely nothing somehow over the five sets. So that should be the focus there from a fitness standpoint. The Rusevori match, I couldn't agree with you more. That was a really bad serving day by Felix. He didn't make first serves. And Rusevori is an awesome baseliner. The reason you would pick Felix to win that match is because he's so much better on serve than Emil Rusevori. So now Felix doesn't have his first serve. He still wins that match. He wins it from the baseline where Rusevori is great. So yeah, I agree. Awesome win by Felix early on in the tournament and a, definitely a sign of things to come. He got better and better as the event went on. Yeah. And, and well, go ahead. To, well, sorry to add to that. You look for Felix from a statistic standpoint, it's 10 matches, small, small sample size. He's holding 86.1% of the time. That would be a top 10 sort of number last season, and that's a career high for him. And by the way, it's the fifth consecutive year. That number has jumped, and now we're 10% into the season, 
haven't played the clay courts yet. If that number comes back to life, you can expect it to. But even if it comes back to life by 1%, 2%, it's still above where he was last season. And the fact that he's only breaking serve 15.2% of the time, which is far below his career average, you know, 4.5%, that's indicative to me of the growth we've seen from Felix on the serve. That even when he's not landing first serves now, the weight of that first forehand and the choices he's making and just constructing the point to find himself forehand in rallies, that aspect's gotten, from an execution standpoint, that's been another standout part of this season. And so when you talk about the fitness declining in four and five, I think it's a testament to his execution that he's still able to make those sets. What was it? Seven, five, six, four? Like, regardless of if he's not at his fittest, that serve in forehand, which we've always projected could be elite, it's flashing elite signs now. Yeah, that's right. And and he lost the long rallies in yes. four and five, and he won the short ones. So that that supports that. You know, the third thing that I think he improved from a, you know, in a large, if we're going macro categories, is the transition game. So I have defense, shot tolerance, transition game. And that third one, his ability to take a short forehand and not just use his power to try to hit through the court and sometimes I think one of the big issues in his career is he hits to tiny targets on his forehand side and misses. He misses even though he hits it clean because he's trying to paint a line. Well, if you're comfortable in moving forward and transitioning to the net, you can put a little bit of safety in that forehand because you're not trying to finish necessarily on that ball, but you can finish at net. And that's what we saw against Medvedev. I don't think that early in his career, he could have had nearly the serve plus one success that we saw in that match because it would have been forehand stay back. And instead, we saw a lot of forehand approach, whether it be two or three forehands. You have to finish Medvedev at net. He's too fast. He's too skilled defensively. If you're trying to sit on the baseline, and hit through them from there, you are going to have a really, really difficult time. So the other part of Felix's growth that I think we saw was just him moving forward and finishing. And I think a lot of that, <clears throat> excuse me, about confidence as well. And to your point, 41 to 48 at the end of this match. You better move forward because if you're playing on Medvedev's term, you're losing. Felix recognizes that, taking his chances to move forward. And as you mentioned, whether it's just putting himself in a position to hit easy plus one volleys off of a forehand, whether it's a more difficult short angle volley or to the open court, he executes flawlessly. And even when you look, 64 winners against 75 on four stairs. Yeah, 75 is a big number. You're playing Daniil freaking Medvedev. You're taking your chance or you're losing the rally. And you look at the numbers from the stats that, you know, FAA is plus 16 in the zero to four shot rallies. He took his chances. It worked out for him. It kept him in this match. Now, ultimately, and this is where we can flip gears here, Didio Medvedev's found that level. And just you look for him, whether it's on this day, plus uh, 16 overall in the five plus shot rallies, or just the fact how he was able to extend this match and just track down plus one ball after plus one ball until slowly the, you know, the, the wall, the dam, the levy broke. There it is for Felix in sets numbers uh, four and five. And, you know, you look for Medvedev three of five. On his breakpoint chances, Felix, 2 of 11 on the match. Medvedev saw his chances. He takes it. Of course, it's always worth mentioning. Felix had a match point in this match. Medvedev able to fight it off. 
Daniil freaking Medvedev. Like I, some of the numbers, Gil, and I know I tweeted these out, but you all listeners know there's nothing I enjoy more than quoting my own tweets. So just to <laughs> reread them here, 70 and 14 in his last 52 weeks. That's an 83% win percentage. He's 127 and 31 since the 2019 City Open. So that was, of course, that started that 2019 where he makes the final of Montreal, loses to Nadal, and ends up winning in the Western Southern Open, ends up making the final before losing to Nadal again in the U.S. Open final, rips through the end of the season as well. Uh, since that stretch, 127-31, winning 80% of his matches. There's a threshold to get into the elite of the all-time stretches, those, you know, I would say the good ones have three-year stretches. The great ones have five-year stretches. The eternal are seven-plus. Medvedev's in the midst of one of those three-year stretches now, 86-14 and 14 against opponents outside the top 20 during that time, 24-12 and 12 against the top 10. He's ready to ascend to world number one, and if he wins this title, he's going to do so. I, I just I, – I continue to be – I just – again, I, why do I read those stats? To, indic- to indicate that this sort of performance is what you get when you've been performing this well over the past three years. Yeah, and despite knowing how amazing Medvedev is, and I've been a Kool-Aid drinker on, on Medvedev for a while, and I think most people have, I didn't know he had this kind of match in him. I genuinely didn't. And that's because we hadn't seen this since 2019. I'm saying he goes down against a top 10 player, in best of five, and he's able to come back because he had played. And, you know, I'm, I just recorded a video on, on my own channel and I didn't have this stat, but I, so, so now I'm going to give you the actual stat, which I didn't even have. (laughs) He had played one, two, three, four, five, six straight three setters against top 10 opponents at majors. Some of them wins, some of them losses, but every Medvedev match seemed to be blowout city one way or the other. How and many I'm of like, those wins were over Rublev? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. I'm uh, guessing four. No. Two? It's got to be at least two. I only see one. Oh, well, so, it just feels so, like it's look, but anyways. I, it's, it's a podcast. We have all day, so let's go through it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 2020 U.S. Open semifinal beats team in straight sets. Australian Open 2021 beats Rublev in straights, beats Tsitsipas in straights, and then loses to Djokovic in straights. Then Roland Garros 2021 loses to Tsitsipas in straights. Then U.S. Open final last year beats Djokovic in straights. It, I, I kept seeing these straight set matches. I'm like, what does Medvedev have in a five-set war against an opponent who can really put, I mean, I'm not talking about Filip Krajinovic or Marin Cilic, no offense to them. What does Medvedev have in a five-set war against a fellow elite player? I had no idea. We just saw he has a heck of a lot. What a battle. What a what a fight that was. I mean, he was just so tough. Yeah, I well, I would go even beyond that. And I know it's a point I've made before, but sometimes the numbers do tell the story. And you look for Daniil Medvedev, go back to 2018. Yeah, you know, the break percentage, he's always been good, 23.4% back in that 2018 season. That would have been a top 20 sort of number, 81.8% hold percentage. That would have been closer to the median. And for a guy at six foot six, that's not just not good enough. But you look at the progression for him since then, 84.2 in 2019. 
86.3 in 2020. He holds 87% of the time last season. That was a top, I believe, six number. I think he just missed out on the top five club because uh, he was just beyond that threshold. But top five, top six, whatever it may be, you add that along with his 31.4% break percentage. And I think when all of us watch Medvedev play, you don't think about him as an elite server. You think about what he does at a, as a returner and his ability to neutralize pace and extend rallies. The thing that is actually his calling card now and the thing that he was able to keep pace at with Felix, who we just said, elite serve plus one, Medvedev has that gear now. And it's not your standard flashy big first serve and I'm going to you know, hit this beautifully Juan Martin Del Potres smacked forehand by you. That's not Medvedev. But Medvedev does have that plus one serve and he does have the ability, short angle approaches, drop shots, line, inside in backhands from the due side of the court, just all of these things that make you uncomfortable. You never know where that approach shot's going to go. That's what makes the Medvedev plus one so effective. And he hold, it's not your conventional power tennis, you know, holding of serve. But that's where Medvedev is. Like the numbers would indicate, you know, I looked it up today. Isner's career hold percentage, 91.6. Right now, 10 or eight, nine matches, whatever, how many he's played this season, Medvedev's holding 92.6% of the time. Like, come on now. If he's going to hold better than Prime Isner and continue to break serve at the rates of Prime Djokovic and Nadal, for lack of a better term, the rest of the tour is fucked. Like they just are on hard courts. He's that good. It's that's the unicorn dynamic that you yeah. talk about. I, I think that most of his, I think that most of his success on serve really does come from his serve because he it's an elite serve. You know, I don't think he's the best. You know, is he bad? No, I mean he. If you look at two points away from the match, a, a point I remembered, it was Deuce. He had just saved two break points. Serve plus forehand inside in approach. Gave him an easy overhead, put it away. It's not like there's an absence of first strike tennis, but it's definitely not on the level of a Felix or a Rublev or a Nadal or a Federer. Uh, but between his serve and his ability to win a neutral rally, if you're able to neutralize the serve, he's going to have that insane, you know, hold percentage, right? Yeah. And no, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, on match point. Yeah. I, I just want to make sure we pay this off. Not only did he save the match point, he had his fastest serve of the night. This is exactly what I was going to get to as well. Go on. Yeah. And not only did he hit his fastest serve of the night, he picked the he picked an out wide location on the ad side, which and is didn't the riskiest hit kick. serve. He hit slap out wide, not kick serve out wide, yeah. slap out wide. Right. Flat serve out wide on the ad side. There is no lower percentage serve yeah. that you can hit. And guess what? Daniil kept double faulting in big spots. If he hit a safe first serve, could we have blamed him? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not really. No. But, it, but he's Daniil Medvedev, so he just goes for it. So that's the crazy thing, right? As we look forward, doesn't it feel like that's a low-hanging fruit? Just Medvedev to improve that plus one ball to get it a bit more powerful now, just by the nature of his forehand take back. You know, he's never going to be able to fully extend on that ball the way we'd love, right? And it's not going to be as easy power as a Rublev or a Felix. But he can do that on the backhand side. And it just feels like – and it's not as though he does it poorly right now as well. But I do feel like he can be an elite – like he could have an elite plus one ball the way FAA does, the way Rublev does. I, I think to your point, because you sort of alluded to this, 
his plus one success feels so serve centric. It's not about the ground stroke. It's about the serve that sets up the ground mm-hmm. stroke. I feel like the ground stroke can get better. I think it can get better, but it also might just not get better. And it's just not what he has. <laughs> Fair. Right. Sure. Now, Cause he I can mean, serve in volley. He can serve in volley. I think the limitations on his first forehand is just racket speed and pace generation, sure. which was a big problem in this match against Felix, who again was willing to move back behind the baseline and scramble and defend. And the effort level was high uh, defensively. And Medvedev would just much rather not have to hit slow, you know, slow pace balls on his forehand from the middle of the court and have to generate his own. He, he doesn't have, that doesn't come naturally to him. He can still do it. And here's the key. It's almost like, and I just thought of this analogy. It's almost like, you know how Novak's weakness is his overhead. Sure. But you can't, you can't beat Novak by giving him overheads. <laughs> yeah, sure. You can't beat Medvedev by giving him midcourt forehands. It's the Bautista Goot theory. Huh? It's no, that's like what Bautista Goot does against Medvedev and somehow it works. Like I, cause I could not agree with you more. Yeah. I don't think Bautista Goot gives him midcourt forehands though. I, I think he just, he's he, maybe he slow balls him to the backhand and just think. Well, shouldn't that work? That's the point other. being, I didn't mean to interrupt okay. you. I agree with you. No, that's all right. But I think the point is that if we're calling, if we identify that as Medvedev's weakness, and I believe that it is, it's a pretty nice weakness because you can't attack it because you're you're a fool if you're going to give him midcourt forehands and be like, well, I'm going to attack his weakness and give him midcourt forehands. You know, you can't do that because it's not it's not a winning play. It's a losing play. It's just that others are better than him at making it a high percentage winning play. No, it's kind of like because I've got a double. Remember the Titans analogy coming towards you. You've seen that movie, right? No. You've never seen remember? No, you're kidding. I can see it on no, your face. No, no, you've never seen remember the Titans. What have you never turned on ABC Family at like six thirty p.m. on a Friday or whatever it's called now? Freeform. That's correct. Yeah, you're too cultured. I was I was busy sipping tea and reading, you know, um, whatever the latest thing is. I'm yeah. <laughs> Listeners should know he pulled up the tea. Although I think that's coffee. If I had to guess, it's coffee. Yeah, knowing you, like I do. Um. Anyway, oh man, I was going to have my whole – well, do I want to ruin it? Do listeners also tweet at me? Do you want to hear the Remember the Titans analogy? Um, no, it's just – yeah, this was that Medvedev game. For those who've seen Remember the Titans in the game where the you know the referees are a bit biased and they're throwing all the flags and you know team gets angry and then team – you know coach gives his speech to the ref and says, I'm going to go to the papers. And then the team gets amped up and just you know one of the linebackers points at the head coach of the other team, gives him this death stare. And that's what Medvedev did to all of us in Tennis Nation today. It would have made a ton of sense if you've seen the movies. Right now, listeners are like, that's genius, Alex. Um, Gil has a face of bewilderment right now. But point being, this was his moment. I agree with you. This was his, no, 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 no. I am the guy. Like, this was his, and he even said it after the match to booze, which, but it was the most honest thing he could have said, which is, I thought to myself, what would Djokovic do in this situation? And like, to some extent... That is what Djokovic would do in this situation. I know it's always ridiculous to make any sort of comparison between what the big three have accomplished and what any other player will accomplish throughout their careers, but this was Djokovician. It absolutely was because it was uncomfortable. He was 
being outplayed for, for large portions of the match and basically stuck with it and didn't really feel the need. I mean, were there adjustments? Yes. He, he went to net much more in the third set. He, he found his, his forehand down the line. It's not an adjustment, but it improved technically, but ultimately incredibly clutch play, incredibly tough and present and focused and determined and physical. So yes, it was very Djokovic. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with you there. And so there's a reason Daniel Medvedev favorite to win this tournament from the start. 66.4% favored right now entering the semifinals, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract, to win the event. We're going to see more Felix. I promise all of you listeners that throughout the course of this season. There were a couple locks predictions-wise. One of them, Fritz making a second week. He's done that. The other lock, Felix winning an ATP <laughs> title this year. Do you think he dips down and plays a 250 just to get the title? Because a 500 is still a 500. Yeah, it's not easy, but I don't think he needs to do that. I'm going to go play another challenger, guys, just to remind all of you that I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Come on now. That's. I I, mean, I'm trying to think. Like 250, not Rotterdam, but like Montpellier or one of those France indoor hardcore 250s. Does he go and play it just to win it? No, I mean he he shouldn't. He shouldn't base his decision making scheduling on the on narrative. But, what do you mean? <laughs> no, he, he shouldn't do that. But okay, can we set uh can we set an over under on <laughs> yes. at what point in the season? And we won't do length of time. We'll do tournament. So like over and over under over under Stuttgart. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I totally get it. Stuttgart's a good one to circle, man. That might be like the inflection That's it. point. Stuttgart and a half. Can we be clear? Stuttgart and a half. Don't be be rude here. Uh, Stuttgart and qualies for the next week. Um, Oh, man. Damn, that might be the best thing you've said since the Alcaraz wins Wimbledon. That's really good. Um, Does the ATP Cup count as a title? No. Okay. Well, I was going to... I mean, in in, in our analysis, it could, but based on the record, it doesn't. What if they're like, well, he was uh, on the losing team in Laver Cup, so put that in the title category. Um, I'm going to say before. I think he chases. I think he's going to chase. Give me him to chase an indoor 250 in the month of February. I think he comes oh, – man, you could probably get plus 400 make-believe odds. No, you probably get plus 700 make-believe odds that he wins a title before the end of Miami. So to me, like, that's the opening stretch. You're, there are two points. It's like Miami and Stuttgart are good. Stuttgart would be like minus 115 pick em sort of thing. I think before the end of Miami, this early hardcourt stretch where you've got a Rotterdam thrown into the mix, indoor hardcourts, like that's got mm-hmm. Felix, or like a Dubai or not, you know, one of those uh, Doha. <sighs> Didn't Baslashvili win one of them last year? No, Karatsev won it. He beat Baslashvili in the final. Yes. Um, I'm going to take the under. A, a, re, a reserved under, I think that is the slight dog plus 105. Reserved under, what would you take? It's a On great Stuttgart? Question. Yeah. If it's Stu, I would take the under also um, because I, I just think it's too much, too much time elapses. So there aren't that many tournaments where I see the conditions and I think, okay, that's a Felix title. For example, as soon as they get on the grass, I mean, Felix is going to be likely a top five player on grass at this point, just based on his prior performances there, the way he continues 
to get better on, on hardcore. if you extrapolate that to the grass, I mean, he's, there's not that much opportunity, but if he plays Queens and he plays Holler, Stuttgart, there's going to be, Felix is going to be in a, in probably top two contenders there. I'm sending that out as a Twitter poll, by the way, right now, as we speak, I'll tag you as well, because I want to know what the listeners think. I think that's a very, very good barometer. If he wins a title before the start of the grass court season, hmm. Like that just means that things have broken right for Felix and that what we've Mm -hmm. seen in January, we will continue to see moving forward. But enough on Medvedev Felix. Let's go to our other match on the day. And we can spend less time, I suppose, talking about the dynamics of this one, simply put, because it was a beatdown. And Stefano Tsitsipas reminds everyone that he does have an elite serve and forehand combo. And Westhoff Give me a loser sound effect, please. I don't know what that's going to sound like. Maybe me singing or whatever you want to go with here. But I think we need, I need to take the L on this one. I have always been a Pass hesitant, I would say. And, you know, I thoroughly believe in him in the clay court too, uh, on the clay courts. And I think he's absolutely on the short list of contenders right away to win the French Open this season. But Gil, this is third Australian Open semifinal in the past four years. Now it feels like each and every season, this year is coming off of surgery, but he finds a way to be prepared for the start of the year. And again, simply put, he was the underdog against Sinner by the metrics, by DraftKings, everyone. And he plus won him to death and dominates yeah. in a straight set victory. Tsitsipas ultimately 6-3, 6-4, 6-2 to advance. Your thoughts on his performance? Yeah, I'll I'll take a a bit of a victory lap on this one because yeah, I, I went on the record I went on the record and said I don't understand the the betting line and I do understand the reason for it. It's because Sinner over the course of the last four months has been at a better level and played better tennis. But at the end of the day, what we've seen at this Australian Open is when you hit a good serve, it doesn't come back. When you play great first strike tennis, it gets you very far, and Sinner just doesn't have what it takes yet to dominate on serve like Tsitsipas can dominate on serve. When Stefanos is executing, which he did in the final two sets against Taylor Fritz. And by the way, I see Taylor Fritz as someone who's playing at a borderline top 10 level right now, certainly top 15. And that win impressed me. And I felt like it clicked for Stefanos Tsitsipas in the fourth and the fifth sets against Fritz, especially on the forehand. Well, the way these courts are being played, Tsitsipas is going to hit a lot of really good first serves that are going to win him the point outright. His first forehand is firing. He's going to come forward. And it's not going to be about center and Tsitsipas exchanging blows from the baseline where I completely understand if you thought, well, center's so much better backhand to backhand. And they're pretty close forehand to forehand. So I, I just kind of like Yannick to to win this thing because he looks more sure of himself from the back of the court. It's not going to be about that. Like you have such a big disparity in the level of serving in this match. For example, it's just a reminder that center still has, especially on, on the quickest courts, he just has development to go on that first serve. And he's playing at such a disadvantage against a player like Tsitsipas, especially at that level. And, um, He's got a lot. He's got a long way to go until he can go toe to toe with that kind of serving performance. So I wasn't that disappointed in Sinner's effort. Yeah, we can we can critique it. We can pick out things that he should have done better. But I didn't think that was that disappointing an effort from Yannick. I just thought he's not capable 
of of meeting Stefanos at the level that Tsitsipas brought to the court. You could argue he blinked eight times in this match, and those eight blinks were the difference between this match being 6-3, 6-4, 6-2, and being a five-set thriller. Because on the surface, Yannick Sinner, 64% of his first serves go in. He wins 71% of his first serve points, 54% of his second serve points, and he lost. And he lost 3-4-2 and two in this match. And so, you know, again, what's the difference? Stefano Tsitsipas, 4-4 on his breakpoint chances. Sinner didn't earn a breakpoint chance in this match. And for Yannick Sinner, who finished top 15 on the return last season, to not earn a breakpoint chance in this match is a testament to Tsitsipas' dominance uh, with his plus one ball. And, you know, it's interesting because the margin in this matchup is only plus four in the zero to four shots uh, rallies. And I actually think that's a testament to Sinner and those service numbers. And him not executing that poorly, he just executed at... 88% of what Tsitsipas was. And so to your point, this match tells me less about Sinner and more about Stefano Tsitsipas and that Mm -hmm. that plus one forehand is a legitimate weapon. And in particular, the way he's going after the inside out forehand, he's always been good on that wing. But Gil, I think he's found a new short angle inside out approach forehand that less drive, but more cut. Like, I feel like that's a new wrinkle to that play. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he's got great hands on his forehand and a great feel for it. And that's typical of someone who uses like an Eastern grip Yeah, that, that Steph does. And he's still able to get a lot of topspin. So it's very, it's very Federer like in the sense that the the grip isn't extreme. It's hard to read, especially from the backhand uh, side of the court. And it's very, very precise. It's not about the power really with Tsitsipas. Now he can hit it huge for sure. And yeah, the forehand was astonishingly good. The footwork protected the backhand. So Sinner had a lot of trouble getting it to the backhand. But then also, and then here's where we can get to Sinner and what he could have done better. There wasn't enough tactical focus yes. on avoiding the Stefano Tsitsipas forehand. Well, I want to ask you this question because I went back and watching this match and comparing it to the Fritz match. I think on paper... The way Taylor Fritz approached the match and the way he had success on uh, against Stefano Tsitsipas laid a blueprint for Sinner, who has the same sort of firepower that Fritz does off of both wings. And it was amazing to see because I don't think, you know, Fritz has a little more pop on the serve, but Sinner had plenty of success on the serve. It was fascinating because you bring it up there. Why wasn't Cici, uh, Sinner able to find the Tsitsipas backhand? To the at the same rate that Taylor Fritz seemed to be able to. Why wasn't Sinner able to extend the match physically in a way that it felt like Fritz was able to? Is that a testament to something Tsitsipas did or something Sinner didn't do? Couple things. The first thing is how uh, how short the points were on Tsitsipas's serve, just not letting them develop. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's one part of the game where. Tsitsipas took so many first and second balls as approach shots, you know, just can't, just can't find the backhand. Um, if, if Tsitsipas is going to be at net by the third, fourth, uh, or fifth shot of the rally. The second thing is the the footwork that Tsitsipas showed. And just, I think making an extra effort to use the feet in this one to protect the backhand. I also want to give a lot of credit to how precise Fritz's cross court backhand is. And even if you give him a tiny target, Fritz is super comfortable. His best shot is honestly his cross-court angle. 
100%. his backhand cross court, right? Uh-huh. He can just, it seems like if you say, Hey, Taylor, put this two inches away from the sideline. He's just like, sure. I, I can do that pretty consistently. No problem. And I, you know, Sinner's backhand is awesome. It's big, it's heavy. And he gets good angles on it himself, but maybe Fritz's is better. I, I, I can't, I, I wouldn't say that unequivocally, but I also wouldn't rule it out. I think Fritz is more natural on that backhand wing, if that makes sense. Like there's there's a bit more, I don't want to say mechanic because the, the center swing is pretty smooth, but there's a fluidity that Fritz has that's elite of elite. You can just tell some people were born to have tennis rackets in their hand. Taylor Fritz is one of them where it doesn't matter. Like I have this theory about Fritz nowadays where, you know, I don't care who you are. You're going to hit the ball at him. And I feel like every time he lines up to hit a uh, ground stroke, he's just kind of like, <laughs> like, oh, you think that's hard? Like, watch what I can do and just cranks it back with more pace. And so I would agree with you. It's probably a feel thing. Like, I think that's fair. I think for Yannick Sinner, he's got the line drive power. Like, there's no doubt about that. And when he's concentrated on ripping a short angle, I think that's where it gets a a bit more mechanical. You can tell his shoulders really turn and, you know, what he's trying to do with his hands there to get outside the ball. Fritz can do it at will. Like at any point, it's just like every, all of the backhand looks, look the same. He's able to disguise it. And so you're right. I do think some of it's a testament to Fritz, but it's also a testament. CC Paz looks healthy. Like that was the other yeah. thing. So I was like, this was the first match because Emer, even in straight sets, I didn't think he played well. And, you know, I, Benoit Pair was just a weird match. This was the didn't first play well like, there. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought that was going five because in the yeah. fourth set, I thought CC Paz got outplayed. He just happened to pull out the, mm-hmm. the fourth set. Uh, but I also I want to be clear though about the biggest difference between Fritz and Sinner and why Fritz played a better match against against Tsitsipas is the Taylor Fritz serve. Sure. If you look at if you look at the Tsitsipas weakness on a hard court, it's all the return. And Sinner's serve is not good enough to take advantage of the Tsitsipas return. Fritz's serve more than good enough. It's it's exceptional. And uh, I mean overall we don't need to get into this. Maybe it's kind of getting sidetracked, but I don't know that anyone is hitting the ball much better than Taylor Fritz right now. Yeah, no, it's look. we're always wanting to get sidetracked to talk Taylor Fritz. I agree. I think he's striking the ball so well from the baseline, but, and again, that he did not win that match is a testament to the plus one execution of Pass, who outplays him in the zero to four. Fritz shockingly wins the five plus shot rallies. And that was him. Once you got into the rally, now you're on Fritz's terms because once you're at neutral, Fritz gets to play offense Sinner did not get to play much offense in this match unless he was landing first serves, unless he was landing big plus one body blows. And again, for Sinner, the hold percentage does drop off drastically by about 5% when he's facing top 20, top 10 foes. That's been a spot we've talked about before. It'll be an area he will continue to improve. I think the last question I would ask on this match as we look at Tsitsipas Medvedev moving forward, you know, this is, yeah, they're friends now. There was the Twitter photo, the private flight et cetera, et cetera. I don't think the rivalry is quite as juicy as it once was. Is Medvedev, or excuse me, is Tsitsipas executing well enough on the serve plus one? Is he executing well enough in neutral rallies on his finding forehands and opportunities to attack that he's going to be able to outlast and break down the wall that is Daniil Medvedev? In your opinion, is Tsitsipas playing well enough? How are you feeling? I'm sure you'll do a full preview for Monday Match Analysis, but how are you feeling at, you know, at this stage? Yeah, I'm I'm feeling like 
I'm feeling like it's a legitimate match. And I think in the past there would have been, there would have been times where I would have been a little bit more clear on favoring Medvedev. Um, but in this case, I really love the way Stefanos is, is moving forward and just, you know, hitting angles with his forehand and coming in behind it. And I just, I wonder, you know, the less they're playing rallies, I think the better it is for Pass. And there is an element of, you know, if, if Stefanos can continue to just, just hit approach shots and just come in and remember, you know, Medvedev takes a couple of shots usually to recover his court position when it comes to how he returns, the best way to do that is you don't let him recover. You, you hit your serve and you either serve and volley or you hit an approach shot. So what I really like is that Pass can kind of copy paste what he did against center and can do that on serve against Medvedev. But the question is the returning and it wasn't, it wasn't great against Fritz. It looked really good against center who was averaging only 116 miles per hour on his first serve. And, and now now Stefanos goes up against a huge server again. So I think it's definitely uh, one of those matches where I do see a lot of holds of serve. And I, I can't back Pass. I don't favor him. Like I just like Medvedev on a hardcore based on all of the history to, to figure things out. But do I think that Pass poses legitimate questions to him in this match? Absolutely. I think that's a pretty good analysis, and again, that's something we'll talk about on our GSP Ace of the Day to, uh, two days from now? Tomorrow. No, it's already tomorrow. It, it's, you lose track. I don't know where we are in Australia. It's Friday somewhere. Um, but Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. All right, with all that said, a couple more things I want to touch on before I let you go, and I lied, my friend. We probably will hit the hour mark. Rafa. Obviously, you host a show, three, a tennis show. You were kind enough to have me fill in for Joel Drucker, who it turns out I did not kill. He's back from the dead, back in his slot on the show. Uh, and I know you guys have monitored Rafa's progress. With all that said, I have puzzling is the word that comes to mind when I think about his five-set victory over Shapovalov in the quarters. And, you know, again, the draw has broken well for Rafa. There's no doubt about that. He didn't have to play the Zverev match, and, you know, he didn't have to play the Hercots match either. Now, you know, still, a draw's a draw. Rafa, five sets, but two days off, heading into the semifinals. The floor is yours. Give me a Rafa take. I still don't, like, I don't feel, I feel wrong about Tsitsipas. I don't want to say my Nadal take has been validated, but I still don't feel disproven yet because, like, even in Chapo, he hasn't had a top-tier test yet. No, that's correct. I mean, Chapo certainly wasn't a top-tier test in that match. There's, what a match. There's no, there's no way around that. I know, I know. Again, I mean, if, you, if you're just, if you're someone who just checks the scores, I mean, you have no idea. <laughs> you know? Like, you thought that was a good effort by Chapo. That's perfectly respectable. You lose in five to Nadal. That was... That was tough. That was tough for Chapo. Um, 
I think Nadal should win this match against Berrettini. I think it's a terrible matchup for Mateo. And there are just so many X's and O's advantages for Nadal when it comes to, I mean, we can, I, I can get in the weeds, but you know, the simplification of it is if you have an exploitable backhand, then yeah. Nadal is just the worst guy on the planet to play. And a lot of this has to do with leftiness, return of serve in Berrettini's case. Uh, I'll say this just to talk about Nadal's service games. And that this is where I just, I don't see how Berrettini has a lot of success on return. Genuinely, I just don't see it as much as I, as you know, as much as I like Mateo and I don't want to just write him off. Um, you need one of two things against Nadal on return. You either, you either need to have a good enough backhand return where you can either hit that tough inside out backhand return on the deuce side or the down the line to kind of backhand middle um, on the ad side to get it to Nadal's backhand. That's option one. Or you can hit it heavy enough down the middle where even though Nadal's hitting a forehand, he's not hitting an aggressive one because you've backed him off with your power and your, or your depth. So Berrettini doesn't have that backhand return that I think is good enough to do those things consistently. Now, if you don't have that backhand return, you can be a player who's able to scramble and defend and work your way back in a point where you start from behind. Stefano Tsitsipas would be an example. Is his backhand return good? No. But does he have the speed and athleticism to steal some points even when Nadal starts with the forehand that he wants? Yes. Berrettini is just 0 for 2 on these things. He doesn't have the movement to come back. He doesn't have the backhand return. So I just don't see what he's doing here on return to beat Nadal. Is his backhand return good enough? No, might now be the podcast title for this episode because I like that. <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, is the backhand return good enough? Um, no, I. You, you laid it out beautifully, and I would point to the sequence you you illustrated there. Just think about every Rafael Nadal match versus Roger Federer match you've ever seen. Just think about the pattern. Rafa, forehand into the backhand, forehand into the backhand. Oh, that's cute. Federer thinks he's slicing down the line. Inside out forehand from Rafa. On the run forehand from Rafa. Now we're back into the backhand forehand pattern. And you're right. We've seen this script. We know Rafa can execute it flawlessly where it's just he breaks your backhand down. And Berrettini has certainly gotten better on that backhand wing and he's gotten more comfortable. And I actually think the heavy topspin of Nadal might help him keep that backhand down as he tries to uh, drive it down the line. Here's the kernel of hope if you are uh, Matteo Berrettini. Shapo played horrible and yet his plus one ball had some success against Rafa because it's just not quite as easy for Rafa to track down, you know, the the three-shot passing combos and the four-shot passing shots like he did in the prime of his career. And I, I don't think I did this segment yesterday. Does anyone right now execute a plus-one forehand better than Matteo Berrettini? I would argue no. Like, I think that's the elite of no. the elite right now in men's tennis. And, you know, with Nadal's court positioning, how far behind the baseline he is, Berrettini is going to get wax at the ball. And Berrettini has swung confidently this entire tournament. Now, doing that against Rafa Nadal is a completely different beast. But I think those opportunities will be there. And I still don't know if Rafa's moving well enough to be able to handle that weapon over the course of five sets. And again, two days off, huge for Rafa. Yeah. I'm kind of 50-50 still. Like, I, you're right. Every instinct says Nadal is going to make Berrettini cry on that backhand wing. <laughs> But Berrettini's going to have more plus one success, obviously, than if this was 2012 Nadal. 
True. Now, uh, I guess that kind of makes the X factor the Nadal return and how good is it right now on a hard court? So where are and you with it? It's hard to tell. Well, I think there have been points in this tournament where it's looked spectacular because he's taken it early and he's had success with that tactic. For some reason, he just hasn't stuck with it. Like against Manorino, it was the difference. But for the entire first set, he was deep in the court, getting pulled out wide, and he didn't have the movement to recover yeah. on Manorino's wide serving. And then he realized in the first set tie break, I need to move up because oh. this guy's hitting slow wide serves. So I should move up. And it completely changed the game. On second serve returns, he's been taking them early. He's been looking really good. But then he's backed up in the Karen Hatchinov match. He just backed up in the third set and lost the third set. It was weird because it was working before. And then in the first set against Shapovalov, I thought he did a good job hitting good returns to rush Shapo by taking the return early in the first set. And then once he got the heat stroke, he backed up. So I just, it's been inconsistent. It's been mixed, but I think that's kind of the X factor. Something tells me Nadal is going to kind of remind us, which he periodically does, that although he's not put into the Djokovic, Andy Murray segment of elite returning, he's really not that far off. And he can play these big servers and do really awesome things with his return. Yeah, it's it's going to be a fun one. You know the tactics you're going to see employed. It feels like there are a lot of known quantities. Now, how they match up against one another again, that's going to be the answer in this question. I mean, if if Rafa snakes is not the right connotation. If he if he wins twenty one, we can just say wins. If he wins twenty one here in Australia, talk about a coup. Like what? I'm trying to think. All time coups. Mao Zedong over China. Like what else do we have here? <laughs> However, the Romans fell. That was quite the coup. Oh, obviously the American Revolution. Quite the coup. This would be up there in terms of just. No match experience. I mean, yeah, he played in the first week, but his toughest match was Cressy. And as great yeah. as Cressy was, come on. And he goes in. He wins, you know, early, one break of serve in the fifth set against Chapo. He gets through. There's no hair on the top of his head. Like, I had Westoff create the bald Rafa graphic so that I can do a tweet about bald Rafa as soon as he was knocked out of this event. But he's not knocked out of this event. So keep your hair, my friend. Yeah, I mean, I can just... <laughs> yeah, I can see in your face. You're like, I got nothing. No, no. But I mean, I'm just thinking of... I Look, do, do I have a take on Nadal's baldness? No, that's 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 up your, your alley. That's why you're that's emergency you. host only. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. Um, but I'm just trying to think if Rafa wins this, there's going to be a big you know war um, about asterisks. Uh, I think we we will likely both sit on the side of the fence that is anti asterisk because a shit happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's how it is, right? You can't, you can't go with the revisionist history and injuries happen and uh, disqualifications apparently happen. And I mean, it's like, it's too, it's too abstract to try to recreate history you know, based on different breaks that, that go different ways. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I guess I haven't like formulated my official argument on this take, but I know exactly what side I will be on. Yeah, that'll be, don't worry. We got six, three segments planned on it. 
over the next yeah. two weeks if needed. All right, last two things and I'll let you go. Immovable object meets the unstoppable force. Barty, Keys, top half semifinal. Obviously, Sviantek Collins playing good tennis as well. Who you, who you got going into championship weekend? Who you favoring? <laughs> it's been like the whole, well, okay. I'll start, I'll start with Sviantek Collins. I think Collins is going to win. Ooh, I, I think, I yeah, like I, yeah, I, I think I've seen enough difficulty with Sviantek absorbing the, the heavy pace on these courts, um, especially on the forehand wing that forehand likes time. And I mean, Collins is just, she's such a, I, I think that she is a better version of, of Kaya Kanepi, even though Kanepi's played great. I, I think Collins is a level above that in terms of, the heaviness that that she brings it's not quite as flat there's more spin i think she on the backhand side especially i just think that from a return perspective and kanepi was definitely teeing off on the second serve but i think collins is just a little bit better at it so and and then mentally i mean danielle i think is probably at this point more sure of herself. I mean, that was a, a shaky mental performance that, uh, that uh, Sviatek put in against Kanepi and she deserves all the props in the world for getting through it. You will never hear me say a bad word about Iga Sviatek's development, about Iga Sviatek's consistency, but I, I just, I'm feeling Collins. Barty, do you want to respond to that or should I? Well, I would like to respond to that quickly and I think I have to send out uh, another Twitter poll here it, with your permission, worst nickname at this point, Danielle, emphasis on the yell, or Novaks? Like, which one's worse <laughs> at this point? I, can I, do I have your permission to send that one out? Yeah, but what, what do I have to do with it? Well, I'm just, you know, again. Are you going to tag me? Yeah, if you're willing. I mean, it's another one from the pod. I got to send oh, yeah, them out yeah. independently. And so that's yeah, really, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to put your name on that joke. You know, I don't know if you want to ride in that crowd with me. Um, but. Yeah, you know, you've seen you anyway. Can, you can go for it. Okay, I like it. Thank blessing. you. Here's the difference. You talk about the flat power of Kanepi, and I'm glad you pointed that out. I thought she absorbed, redirected the pace of Shiantek. That's the perfect ball Kanepi's looking for. Collins mm-hmm. is a pace generator. Collins is a yeah. spin generator. I do think Shiantek's ball disrupts that for Danielle mm-hmm. Collins. And now and then from a return perspective, you know, does because they're both a bit winded. And you look at their numbers, Danielle, you know, both of them, the return points, one drops by 4%, 5% against top 20 opponents. The difference being, I don't think Danielle Collins has the sort of service power to disrupt the Sviantec forehand return in the way that Kanepi did. Her slice out wide yesterday on the deuce was outstanding. And so I'm leaving Sviantec. Like, I'm glad we disagree here. I kind of like a a rare disagreement. I think, I just, I think the ball, I, I think, the ball of Sviantec is dynamic in a way that it actually will give Collins problems. Yeah, okay. So that's where I'm at on that one. But yeah, Barty Keys, because this is your championship match, folks. <laughs> this is, I don't hesitate. I don't hesitate and I go with Ash and I, I have been all tournament against, especially against this kind of player. Like, honestly, I think that, I think your your Sakaris of the world or your Sviateks of the world are the ones that can sort of match Barty in terms of in terms of kind of playing that two-way game um, where there's no like real obvious mismatch there. You know, both of them can get hot and can do things with weapons on the court, for example, but they can also both defend and play long rallies against a uh, against 
someone who I think, you know, Keys is a bit of a, a one-way player. She needs to dictate. She wants to be aggressive. She wants to be offensive. She doesn't want to move and she doesn't want to defend. And when you, when you have a player like that, Barty's going to have a lot of success on serve. It's so difficult to deal with Barty's serve plus one and Barty's really just dynamic West Coast offense where she does so many things so well and moves the ball around the court. You better be ready to move and defend and be savvy in that part of the game or Barty is going to enjoy tons of success. And then, you know, we see how she can steal points with her movement and her defense. Barty can against someone like Keys who wants to dictate. So I see this as a classic two-way player against a one-way player. And Barty's the two-way player. And I'm just going to pick her every time in this kind of matchup. I think Jess Pagula said it best. Ashley Barty's just a little bit better at everything than everyone else. And it's like, yeah, Keys has served lights out, right? 77.8% over her 12 matches. Barty's been broken four total times. 95.3% right now. That's better than everyone. Like, mm-hmm. it's just laughable. And she played this match against Amanda Nisimova. We've been there. Now I think Keys is more fluid. I do think Keys is serving well enough right now. She does have a big enough weapon to make the Barty backhand uncomfortable. But Barty's just a little bit better than everyone else. So yeah, give me Ashley Barty as well. All right, last one for you. And this is going to be a running bit between us, just so you know. I'm going to do this every time we have you on the show. Sinner versus Alcaraz. That's the new (laughs) big three discussion. Where are you at right now? We're, again, through the Australian Open 2022. Sinner versus Alcaraz. Jewish tennis first take, baby. (laughs) G&G. G&G. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm unchanged. I'm I'm team Alcaraz. I I think he's got more tools in the in the tool shed. I think he's got more natural athleticism. I think he's got the weaponry to match the Yannick Sinner amazing power off the ground. Um, and I, I like Sinner in this tournament. I liked how he literally ripped through to the um, to the quarterfinal here. Meanwhile, Alcaraz, you know, we had a tough loss when I don't think he was ready for the moment against Berrettini. I think he adjusted and started to play his best tennis for the final three sets, but he looked like a kid against Berrettini in the first two sets. He looked overexcited, like there was too much adrenaline in that blood, and he was trying to hit every ball 100 miles per hour, and that's what a young player does. So what this did confirm to me is that Sinner is more mature than Alcaraz at this stage in his career. He is more progressed. What this did not confirm to me is that Sinner's going to be a better player. I'm still team Alcaraz. See, this is I like that you gave me a serious answer. I I honestly, coming into this, was going to say whichever you were on the side of, I was going to take the other, but I'm happy yeah. to take team well, Sinner. tactics. No, and I do think I – exactly, and I do that's think – That's for the ratings. No, you're – do you want to be Wilbon or Kornheiser? Tell me now. I'm I'm the bald one, so I'll be corn. I'll be Wilbon. You can be Kornheiser. <laughs> um, but no, but I also have more. Uh, you know, Corny, Kornheiser has his sticks about him, right? If we're gonna say who's more sticky, me or you, probably me. Although says the man who eats only butterfingers. Um, you know, I think you're right. There is a fluidity to everything Alcaraz does, and just an explosiveness. But there's also a violence to it all, and it just feels like. You, I'm not worried about his longevity in the immediate future, but 
there's a there's a smoothness to everything Yannick Sinner does. Everything just feels so easy for him, and everything's so condensed, and everything's so smooth. And uh, give me the smoothness of Sinner and the first serve deficiencies, because I don't think he lacks athletically over the violence of Carlos Alcaraz, who I still think match in match out has an incredibly high floor, but it just feels like everything, the footwork, and just how you know the sliding and everything he does, it's it just feels like Sinner's game comes a little bit easier. And I think over time, those sorts of things matter. Because tennis is a 52-week mm. season. Again, it's not the greatest take. They're yeah. both really no, good. No, no. No, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, it's definitely important that you have a game that's sustainable to, to execute. And yeah, I think there there is a little bit more of a, he's more of a jet fuel burner, Alcaraz. I would agree with that. But what I love about about him, you know, part of what I love about him is physically he looks like he can be like Nadal, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Nadal plays with an unbelievable amount of energy, explosiveness, hard on the body. And at least for most of his career, and it's just superhuman athlete. He could withstand it. And I think Alcaraz is going to be able to do it. Yeah. It's look, it's the fun rivalry. It's the new it one. Is. You got to pick your team right now. I'm team center. I have a soft spot for gingers. Your team Alcaraz, you like bootleg Ronaldo. Um, that's cool. I like it moving forward as well. Well, with Spanish all- tennis, yeah. you know me. <laughs> exactly. I like it. Come on. Uh, with all that said, give me the plugs. What do you have over the last next couple of days? What can we expect from you? We are on the uh, post-match analysis train, the pre-match live stream train. Gil Gross, the YouTube channel, subscribe, turn on notifications, join if, you, if you're so inclined, but only join after you know that you've liked what, what, what you see. Um, and yeah, Monday Match Analysis, if you're a podcast listener, look up Monday Match Analysis, and I'm on Twitter at Gil underscore Gross. Mm-hmm. And I've- three- yeah, and three, a tennis show, of course, as well. All right, true or false here, because you expressed a sentiment at the beginning of your guest-hosted mini-break, which, again, can't thank you enough for doing, but it may have been a lie to the listeners. I want to give you an opportunity to correct yourself now. Is it that hard to do what I do? Like, are we sure it's that hard? I mean, I do it. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, mo- there's certainly a lot of people who can't do it. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> because they don't have the free time or the capability. The answer well, is look, yes. Look, part of it, part, no, part of part of it is dedication and time commitment. Don't get yeah. me wrong, but you know, it's that. First of all, Billie Jean King. Yeah, hard work is talent. Yeah, it's true. Or or, or persistence is talent. It, one of those quotes uh, was one of yeah. those. The point is, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with with grinding out there. Um, but again, like we we've talked about it offline. To, to turn a joking question into a serious question. Like we, we do have kind of different approaches where um, I tend to zoom in to kind of minimize the scope of my coverage. And that way I can get super in depth where you provide more overview, which requires just more, you know, volume, but, but you're also able to get into a detail that surpasses what most of tennis media is able to achieve. So in that respect, that's kind of what I was trying to convey. What I heard there is you just called me a slightly more efficient Monte Ellis, which like I think is a compliment. What the? V- volume, you're like the volume. That's what I, you know, that's oh, what, that was the word a I, volume I, shooter. Volume yeah, but shooter, a, but yes. a, but a more efficient volume shooter. 
than, than Monte Ellis is what you're telling me there. What's a more efficient Monte? Steph Curry? Yeah, I'll take a Steph Curry comp that I just <laughs> gave to myself. Um, yeah, you know what? If I'm going to give you an NBA comparison as a podcaster and as your show, wow. Well, it's got to be a guy who's in the all-NBA conversation because Gil don't mess around with the basics. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, Fred Van Fleet? Because, you know, short port guard getting the job done. Um, all right. I'm, I'm trying to think. LaMelo? Like, there's a lot of talent there. No, LaMelo. No. I mean... Yeah, this is good. Leave all of this in, Westoff. Um, no, I'll, I'll give you one more for you. Ooh! Ooh, ooh, what about, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying young Chris Paul, because that's probably, you know, don't flatter yourself. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I'm just trying to think, like, who is a, you know, Mike Connolly Jr., but, like, you would have gotten five all-star appearances. Do you want, do you want to give me more than that? You just want to give me Mike Connolly, not it's, support it's, it at all? Yeah, just, with any like, yeah. Yeah, just know him. You're Mike Conley. That's you know what? I really thought it would resonate with you better. I thought you'd be like, okay, sure. You're right. That makes – I set up – you know, you've got Zebo and Paul Gasol, a.k.a. Amy Lundy and Amy Joel, Joel okay. Drucker. Yeah. And, you know, you get traded to the Jazz, a.k.a. you come and guest host in the mini break and you take that team to the next level as well. And, like, you know, again, you're um, – well, did Mike Conley play USA Basketball? That would be you doing stuff on Tennis Channel. Um yeah, you know what, Mike Conley Jr. I don't think Mike Conley made Team USA. Yeah, he might not have. Well, you know, I haven't seen you on the Tennis Channel desk. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Oh, I can't help it. Um, all right. With that said, my friend, and to all of you listeners, thank you, as always, for tuning into the action. If you've missed any of the days across the board, you can catch up on it all on our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review this show, Great Shot Podcast, Crack Interviews, and the YouTube channels to ensure that you don't miss out on any of the coverage. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout-out as – I'm not at Great Shot Pod. I'm at Adel O'Gruskin now, but a shout-out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who – if I wanted to make him slave out over more, I would make him delete that last five minutes. I'm going to let him leave it in. I want to hear your thoughts. And again, ask Jeff Sackman, the eye test stat on the leaderboard. It would mean a lot to me if uh, to hear his thoughts and if he'll let us do it. But with all of that said, shout out to our friends at TennisPoint, TennisPoint.com. Promo code is CR15 for emergency mini break podcast host Gil Gross, our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell the listeners? That's the break. And we will see you all next time. Thank you as always, my friend. Thank you. <laughs>